And we are live. Welcome to another episode of Unscripted. And I have the great pleasure to introduce David Anderson. Thanks very much for joining me today. Much appreciated. How are you? My pleasure. I'm fine, David. How are you? Of course, you're fine. You just came back from uh, the honeymoon. And probably we're going to talk a little about And I just saw a posting where you said cybersecurity, Mary, what is it? Cyber insurance? Yes. <laughs> so I really like that. But maybe jump, let's jump into kind of the your history and background, just for people that are familiar with what you've done, how you got into the cyber agent space, and we'll start from that and be a bit of a up. So yes, I've been a cyber insurance broker for about 10 years. I started off working with small middle market accounts and then eventually started building out a book of larger complex slides, Fortune 500, Pussy 1000. Really, as the cyber insurance product evolves, David, the underwriting, information that's needed and the education that we have to provide to our clients gets more more complicated. So it was almost like I was on the same learning curve as my clients, but fortunately, usually one or two steps ahead of them. But yeah, over the last 10 years, it's been a huge evolution in the marketplace and all I've ever done is cyber insurance. And I love it. It's kind of dirty. It's amazing. And so you are kind of shaking your feel until you make it for the longest time. For the first couple years, definitely, absolutely. I think the market itself, the cyber insurance market, David, had a lot to learn. And I think they have, as an industry, we've definitely matured, but you had a lot of liability underwriters who deal with privacy liability, financial loss that really haven't seen first party loss from business interruption, ransomware, data restoration. All of those were lessons that haven't been learned yet. We've learned them as an industry, absolutely. And did you know you you're going to end up here, broker in cyber insurance? And some people say, "Oh, I want to be like whatever." And then I talked to a lot of people that are getting into this industry, and they're not even familiar with with your job because all you know it exists. So, let me just walk me through like how you get you know, land the first first gig, and that was you know ten years ago. That was a long time. That's that's. The cyber insurance industry was just in a working state. So talk to me about like how do you land the first gig and how do you end up like just being broken? I just you know, very niche kind of um, industry. Yeah, it's really funny. The the commercial insurance industry as a whole kind of has this little joke about it that a lot of people fall into insurance without expecting to work here. I am absolutely one of those people. I worked at a bank that was across the street from my former employer and the then CEO walked in to do some account maintenance and we started chatting and he asked me to come in and talk to his team and the rest is history. So I fell into it. I was always a strong client facing person. I was always very passionate about uh, solving problems in creative ways for our clients. And the banking space is quite restrictive in terms of products and regulation, but insurance is a little bit looser and you have creativity all over the marketplace that you can leverage. It was really a good fit for my passion for taking care of clients. And I just, cyber was something that my employer needed at the time. So I raised my hand, like you said, thank you to make it and let me teach myself and try to build a business within a business. And it's interesting you mentioned, so it's no mind, I'll double click on a couple of things you mentioned. Sure. Creativity and insurance. That's just not, it sounds like almost like oxymoron. Can you describe what does that mean in terms of being creative in this particular space? So you have a number of different, first of all, there's going to be some people that take offense to that comment. So that's okay. You can always, you can right now, blimp any kind of. Have 
multiple pools of capital thing, right? Within the insurance space, you have traditional insurance companies that you see on TV, hear about on the news. You have private investments or maybe hedge funds or wealth management capital that can invest and provide risk capital. You also have syndicates from Lloyds of London, which is a pool of capital with multiple different investors syndicating a guarantee for a risk. Depending on what the risk is, and this is larger than just cyber insurance, to be fair, depending on what the risk is and what the person providing you the capital's appetite is, you can sign the right home for a specific situation from an insurance perspective and negotiate the terms and conditions. Everything in insurance is negotiable and everything in insurance is insurable for a price. So let's step outside of cyber insurance in a vacuum and say, okay, let's say I own 10 ski resorts all over the country and I have a mortgage on all these ski resorts. If we have a bad snow year, how am I going to pay my bills? You can insure the risk arising out of the fact that you didn't get enough snow. You can insure the risk arising out of architectural or engineer, engineering failures. You can insure anything that, that you can attribute a financial loss to. You just need to be able to model the risks, figure out what the proper premium is, and find the right counterparty to commit the capital. That's all insurance is. So you just need to know which door to knock on, and you can always find the right product for your client. Solution, I could say. I don't say, I'd like to say solution. Solutions, I understood. That. It brings me like there some some things that I've read, like, you know, how some professional uh, athlete or something, the shortest pinches finger, 10 million, million dollars because it was very important that their performance and the loss associated with losing that pinky uh, yeah. uh, can create a quite a financial damage. And so that's where the creativity comes from. So that's why I guess it's so important to deal with the broker as opposed to dealing directly with the insurance company because it's like a, it's, you're a professional, so you are aware of all the nuances associated with dealing with certain insurance firms. Now, you also mentioned specifically that you really enjoy being a client facing. Now, was this always natural, came natural to you, or was it something you had to learn? Because again, this is the skill set associated with dealing with clients. It's not trivial. You kind of glass right over it as if it was nothing, but it was dealing with clients. Sometimes I start with like difficult conversation as well. Clients are demanding, they may come to you after the fact where you're in the dire straits. And sometimes, for example, you have to deal with the uninsurable customers. Right. I'll be about talk to me about, about, about that. I, I, I don't know how the universe assigns personalities to people, but I just, I'm a chatterbox. I love to talk to people. I understand people. I'm a compassionate person. I can empathize with other people. There's bad news is part of every day, David, and especially in the cyber insurance space, there are uninsurable clients. There are clients who are going to have difficult situations. The question is. How do you communicate that? And how do you provide next step? My job is to represent my clients in the best way possible and tell their story in the marketplace. That story is not told without hours and hours of internal discussion with their CISO, with their general counsel, with their chief privacy officer, whoever the stakeholders might be. And I need to get their buy-in so that they understand that the more information they give me to to package out and push out to the markets, the more likely we're going to succeed. And there are some situations where we can't find coverage. And so we take a step back and we say, okay, what were the top five or top 10 
biggest areas that scared the underwriters away. Can I introduce you to a vendor or to a provider or someone who can resolve these issues so that we can go out to market? Ultimately, my job is to make sure the contract flops. A lot of people don't think about the concept that I'm selling you a promise. I say sell, it's kind of tacky to say that, but really insurance is just a promise, right? You're not, you, you buy a pen, the pen works or it doesn't work. If it doesn't work, you return it. That's all there is to it. With insurance, you really have to be thoughtful about how the actual terms and conditions of the contract dovetail with your client's exposures and risks. And when the contract performs, you re reinforce or make clear that you have your client's best interest. That is the most fundamental concept behind any insurance brokerage or broker's value is that the contract performs. And that's where I'm, I take my job very seriously and make sure that our clients are fully educated. Cyber insurance policies don't cover everything. Property insurance policies don't cover everything, but there's a universe that's covered and then there's a universe that's not covered and maybe it's covered somewhere else, but you have to make sure that your clients are educated and that requires absolute transparent communication and being forthright, period. And it's in your best interest to make sure that that contract performs because you as a broker, you're looking at the long miss, the client may switch insurance providers, but you as a broker is there to maintain that relationship and provide him the next, uh, the next policy. Now you also had, and by the way, when I hear performance, I always like to speak about, okay, my personal experience is that it's super easy to sign up for insurance, to pay an insurance company, but then when you have to file a claim, when they have to pay, then there's certain things you have to follow. There's even, and I like to explain for the people who are listening to this and are not fully aware of what we're, what we engage in. If you rewind, because most people understand, you know, personal liability and insurance. So when you're providing examples, I love to, to provide examples, just like you described for, for property insurance, because people do understand that. And I know there are companies, for example, for property insurance that specialize in filing claims. For example, after a disaster occurs, they reach out to the people that are insured and say, listen, let us help you file a claim in such a way that you can maximize the contract, because even that is a is an art form. Oh, I agree. Most insurance brokerage shops, David, will have a claims team. They'll have a property claims team. They'll have a, a liability claims team, which is swift strips and falls. And then they'll have usually a cyber claims team as well. The claims team should, in a perfect world, uh, work hand in hand with the brokerage team so that they have the context of the contract negotiation before the purchase. That way, when the claim happens, the claims team starts talking about this and this, and we expect this to be covered. David, when you ask me for specific examples, this is obviously an information security podcast. For anyone that's listening to us have this nerdy discussion, cyber insurance policies are very disparate. They are one of the most disparate policies that you'll ever encounter. Homeowners policies, auto policies, all of the regular policies that everyone know are highly regulated financial instruments, and they're regulated the vast of the policyholder is it should be. For commercial insurance, and specifically with cyber insurance, every product varies. So if you are a company that has no material privacy exposure, but you are manufacturing a million widgets a day with an automated operational technology assembly line, you have a very different cyber risk 
than someone who's sitting on 500 million healthcare records and is acting as a data broker or some sort of data analytics firm. When you have a discussion around buying cyber insurance, it is incumbent upon your broker. And if they're not telling you, you need to ask, you need to understand where your risk sits in comparison to the policy. Some policies exclude unlawful or unsavory data collection practices. Some policies exclude coverage for ransomware claims impacting operational technology or industrial control systems. If you have a company that is almost entirely dependent on industrial control systems and you have great privacy coverage, but it excludes operational technology, what's the point of the coverage? So it is very important, specifically with cyber, that you understand how the terms and conditions dovetail to your unique exposure. But that's why there, there are different aspects associated with it. You mentioned that you have to educate your clients. Is one is a lot of times that, you know, they don't even know what they're exposed to. And what's leads to mind, for example, SMBs are the backbone of the U.S. economy. And it's a knowledge-based economy. And everything is in digitized. Even in a small marketing firm where 10 clients have a risk associated with collection of a bunch of data. It can be products, like it can be future launch, it can be national information, you get yes. it. And so they are exposed to that risk, but they may not be aware because, again, because we're kind of laggard in that respect in terms of what's risky, what's not. Excuse me, the, the way that we help our clients identify risk is the NIST framework. Oh, what else is there to do? So we actually go through and help them identify where there is exposure. Is there data exposure? Is there operational exposure? Are they properly classifying information? Do you know where your information is even? Do you know what kind of volume of information you have? Those are questions that we absolutely have to ask before we even think about getting a quote. Because if the client can't answer those questions, then A, we're gonna have a longer cycle to getting coverage. But B, we should be ready as their broker, as an industry, all brokers should be ready to help educate them on understanding where their data is, where their risk is. And there are models that are becoming more mature that can help them understand the financial exposure. But as the broker, absolutely, David, step one is helping our clients identify what their exposure actually is. And not everyone can answer that question. And that's okay, but you should know at some point, it is incumbent upon you as a business owner, whether you're an SMB, or whether you're a Fortune 500, if you don't know where your data is or who's holding it or who's processing it or who you need to call if XYZ system goes down, you are in a very precarious position because once those computers go to the black or blue screen of desk, everything's going to... It sounds like it's, they have to prove a certain level of maturity. If you mentioned the part of the education process, where do you stop? In the sense that, in the sense that let's say a customer comes back and says, well, I, I don't know, or... Because it's not, you're not a security consultant. Where did you pass the puck now to someone else to assist them with getting them to a threshold where they're insurable? Every, every job, every cyber insurance brokerage job that I've had, I've always had to toe the line of being a cybersecurity consultant or a privacy statute consultant. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an, I'm not an IT professional per se. So once you get to a point, so we can help them identify, we put together a framework, David, they need to fill out the framework with us. We'll work with them to understand which stakeholders to call, who to ask. When we get to the point of, okay, it looks like we don't have adequate backups or our backups are not adequately protected, or we don't have two-factor authentication for remote access, I, I can't help it. So 
the goal then is to get them to the appropriate vendor to make sure that they can address those concerns. Same thing from a privacy perspective, right? When GDPR came out four or five years ago in the European Union, clients would come to me and say, we don't have adequate disclosure about data collection policies. We don't have an adequate reporting mechanism on the website for someone to file a complaint. Can you help us with that? I'm not a privacy attorney, I'm an attorney at all, actually, but I can introduce you to an ecosystem of vendors, attorneys, consultants, IT professionals that can help you. To your point, David, there is a whole little ecosystem of experts that surround and support the insurance buyers, the brokers, and the carriers. They're very good people. All these folks know exactly what they're doing. And that's where I get, that's, that to me is the line. We're like, oh, do you tell us which port to close? Yeah, that's not my job. I can get you someone who will tell you what port to close, but that's not me. <laughs> now, these vendors, it's really interesting you brought this up again. This is, I try to keep it as a wide audience as possible, but yeah. there, are, there are vendors that would love to chat with you, David, because they're after clientele, your clientele, and it's a gold mine. If somebody coming back and say, oh, we don't have any data recovery, oh, we don't have two-factor, or we have no, no idea about our data retention policies, they'll love to have a conversation with them. Uh, how do you pick vendors that are available to you? That's a really good question. So there's a couple of different ways, David. After 10 years in the game, I've seen who's good at their job and who's not in terms of when the actual ransomware hits or the data breach or whatever the situation is. So there is a little bit of an inherent knowledge in my own mind about which vendors I think are really good experts and also have white glove service. This is one thing that I will say to the incident response vendors in the room listening to this, you can be the smartest guy in the industry, but if you can't talk to a CFO or CEO, it's not going to work. There's obviously a different language being spoken. It's both English, but there's two very different languages being spoken. So bedside manner, for lack of a better word, I hate that, is hand in hand with expertise. That is something that I've seen over the 10 years that I've had claims and attacks on my clients, but also the insurance companies themselves, the policies, David, depending on which product you buy, and I would say more often than not, include some sort of introductory session, prepaid services that will help you either do a disaster recovery exercise, secure your backups, implement multi-factor. These insurance companies have also seen they're the same thing I have, except by a volume of a hundred. So they know who the right vendors are. They know who the best vendors are for a specific situation. So. If you're not getting the right information or recommendation from your broker, you can always go back to your insurer and say, I have a problem with this specific control. And who do you recommend to fix that? And I would be surprised if they don't have an answer because the insurance companies see hundreds or if not thousands of claims a day in the cyberspace. So they know who does the job well and who does not. So you're telling me the stuff we see on the news is just the two part the iceberg? A lot of these not getting supported. If, if, if you think about the pipeline, which I'm not going to name, or pick another data breach that you think about that makes the news, for every one of those, there's probably a thousand that happened to dentists and bakeries and all the SMBs that are the backbone of the economy, to your point, David, every day. Yeah. And it's interesting when you mentioned the IR companies having those soft skills are really hard for them because a lot of them are specialized in a very technical profession to provide that instant response. And they don't necessarily know how to engage when something does happen. 
and make yeah. the white glove service. It's all nice and dandy, but it's expensive. It's, people don't realize how expensive. And I've seen some numbers flying around after breaches happen. Yeah. Some of them go into a, a million and a half dollars in model oh, for team helicopter in and drop, drop ship to a on location. And it takes four or five months just to do the math associated with it. And I don't know how much insurance policy is, but does insurance policy covers the incident response, the cost associated with the white cluster? Absolutely. Any, again, we, we goes back to a couple of points before, David, you should know what insurance you're buying. If your broker is not explaining to you how the policy works in the claim, you should be concerned. If you have negotiated the appropriate contract, which usually requires paying a little bit more premium. I'm sorry to all the buyers out there, but you get what you pay for. It's the truth, David. If you get the right type of coverage and the right structure, you absolutely will get white glove service from the vendors. Any cyber insurance policy that I have placed over 10 years and many of my competitors who are very good at their jobs have placed in their careers should absolutely affirmatively include access to a highly respected and highly rated IR vendor. Full stop. It should absolutely include access to a highly skilled incident response attorney or a privacy breach attorney to help support them. It should include costs for public relations. It should include costs for data restoration services, and it should include costs to deal with any sort of notification obligations, credit monitoring, et cetera. If you don't have those coverages in your cyber policy, then you are missing fundamental coverages that you're going to realize you need minute one when the attack comes in. And it seems like there was a shift. And by the way, you do that totally well. This conversation is totally unscripted. We have not brand any of these questions. And it's because I like talking about too much. It's awful. It just, just, <laughs> just spot on. I believe there was a shift in the past several couple of years because it seems like a lot of companies use insurance, cyber insurance. Oh in, God, in, yes, in, you're so right. In, 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 in lieu of, of, of actually fixing some of the issues. And then the pandemic hit and the, the spike associated with ransomware and the, the costs associated with covering some of the business losses. And then insurance companies said, hold on for a second. It's not insurance.org, it's insurance.com. We're here to make money. People forget about this. Insurance companies are not there to service you. They're not pro bono. Talk to me about that shift. And if you can, since you're, you're a pro at this, maybe you pinpoint the approximate time that happened. Yes. Oh my God. This is one of my favorite questions. I think the inflection point. So you're absolutely right. For the first 10 years of cyber insurance, I'd say even before I started doing it, maybe 2010, 2015 to 2020, insurance was very affordable. The underwriting was concerningly easy and the ransomware threat actors hadn't quite realized how to monetize the way that they have now. So for the first 10 years of cyber insurance, it was really a discussion around privacy. Someone got in, maybe a state actor or some kid in the basement, whatever, and accessed 80 billion of your patient records, right? So it was almost entirely around privacy. For the first 10 years, underwriters realized that you could assign a very predictable value per record. If you're sitting on a million healthcare records, David, the average cost to remediate a healthcare data breach is $29 a record. Pretty straightforward, right? So the actuarial models that existed 10 years ago solely really focused on privacy liability, and it was a very predictable model, and the industry was great. Once we started seeing the ransomware threat actors 
understand that there was affirmative coverage on the policy for payment of ransom and the costs to negotiate and the costs to procure the Bitcoin or whatever currency you want to use to make the payment. They realized very quickly over the course of 12 months, David, ransoms went from $5,000 to a one or two or $3 million in a matter of months because all the threat actors realized they can hold people for ransom. At the same time, policyholders have not spent nearly enough time preparing for true business interruption. Most policyholders were focused on data loss prevention, monitoring databases, all the things associated with protecting your data, not enough people focused on resilience and recovery. So it made for a very difficult situation and the insurance market popped and lost it in 2020 when the SolarWinds hack came through when the same server hack came through, Kaseya didn't help when that came through, right? Where the insurance companies realized, oh my God, every one of our policyholders is using the same software. And when the vulnerability comes out, everyone has the same vulnerability. So the insurance companies in the 2020, 2019, 2020, 2021, that area, obviously the pricing all of a sudden became unsustainable and it went up. The horrific, the anecdotal explanation right now is double half. Double your deductible, double your premium, cut your limit in half. That's what we saw in 2020. Wow. But really what then we also saw was the paradigm from the underwriter's perspective going from how are you going to keep people out to how are you going to get back online when the attack happens? So underwriting for a very long time, David, was tell me how high your walls are, how thick your walls are, and how many soldiers you have standing on the perimeter. All of a sudden, in 2020, the paradigm went from back to, if someone wants to get in, we know they're going to get in. They'll get in every time. If someone wants to get in, they're going to get in. How are you going to recover when they do get in and they blow up your backups and they blow up your databases and they blow up the configuration on your networks and your telephony and they blow up the configuration on your ICS industrial control system. So question set has almost completely changed from that to how do you recover? And that's all we talk about now. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when and how you survive. And how you recover has a lot to do with how much, you know, you practice and you have this kind of muscle memory to use a miniature term. These tabletop exercises, you only cover some of those scenarios, but even due to the pandemic, nobody thought they were going to have to two weeks, everyone had to work from home. So that was a very much unknown. So how do you now have this conversation to, to make sure the time to recovery is minimal as possible because that minimizes the losses and help organizations prepare for what's next and prioritize. From a high level perspective, it's more straightforward than you think it is. I'm going to give a little bit of credit to the insurance industry because they drove the behavior. Yes, they drove behavior with higher premiums. We get it. But they drove behavior because there was no other way to make it a sustainable industry. We couldn't just keep insuring people that we're going to get hit no matter what. So now... Every company that's applying for cyber insurance has to have had at least a tabletop or some sort of disaster recovery exercise surrounding a cyber incident in the last four months. Otherwise, you're not sure. You have to have adequately managed backups. And I'm talking about offline or air-gapped or in a cloud, and they want multi-factor authentication, and they don't want duplicity in the credentials. Your backups need to be ironclad. Otherwise, they're uninsurable. The thing is with backups, sometimes they have the backup, but they never actually restored it. And the, the reason they don't restore it is because it takes two weeks. 
So that comes back to the that comes back to the muscle memory and, and the disaster recovery exercise. The third question underwriters will ask oh, as part of me is when is the last time you tested your backups and how long does it take for you to restore your critical systems? The answer to the question, David, of how long it takes to restore your critical systems from backup is probably going to be the time element deductible on the pulse. Wow. And how do you make sure that the that Somebody tells you, oh, it takes us two hours to, to restore. And how do you verify? So there's this whole trust, but verify. I'm sure that the insurance company yeah. does some of that. So they didn't use, underwriters didn't use to ask how long it took. They were just, David, like 2017, 2016. Yeah. Do you have backups? Yes or no? Great. You have backups. Now underwriters will ask you how long it takes and when was the last time you tested and the information that you provide in that application is a representation and warranty that coverage is contingent upon. Right. So that means in layman terms, if I understand correctly, if, you, if it takes you 24 hours to, to restore and, and if something happens and it takes you two weeks, you know, the, the insurance company is only going to cover, you know, that 24 hours. With caveats, of course, it's so true. There's caveats, right? So I always try to manage this perception that the underwriters are out to get people. They're not, especially in the cyberspace. It's a young product. So I don't think that any underwriter is looking to undercut the value proposition in the product. Where I will tell you is if you have tested your backups and it takes you two weeks to restore and you put on the application 24 hours, you like. And the underwriter has a legal right to adjust the coverage or pull it. If, however, you tested the backups and it took you 24 hours and everything went smoothly, and then when the ransomware attack happens and all the systems are not restorable because the decryptor key is this or this is that, the underwriter is not going to avoid coverage. They're absolutely not going to do that. And they would have a hard time winning that site in court. What I, what, the reason I mentioned that specifically in terms of representation and warranty is not because underwriters are looking to find out where people lied, but more importantly for the person filling out the application, which isn't always the expert, David, I have human resources directors or general counsels filling out the section around OT or restoration. And I always tell them, are you comfortable with these answers? Have you actually asked the right people for these answers? And they go back and say, oh, half the answers were wrong. Yeah, sure you know what, David always wants to admit that they don't know. That's the problem, or that they didn't, you know. Have it's to my with- job as your broker to make you comfortable saying, I don't know, and let's find the right person to the end. And I listen to you, and, you know, I try to have the feeling that, okay, you know, the brokerage in the insurance companies are really your partners for the long term. And it's not you versus them. And you should not look at the underwriters as, you know, their enemies to, as you mentioned, how to get them. If you do follow, requirements and are legitimately want to protect your organization and answer correctly and truthfully, you have nothing to worry about. But then you look at what is Merck, where you're battling in court because they said what worked is forceful. A great example of a claim that did not involve a cyber insurance policy. Just like Mondelez, just all these other claims that always are sexy headlines. Yes. Policy owner sues insurance company for not covering the claim. Does anyone ask the question, was it a cyber policy? No, I, I'm to blame. I'm first of all, put the airbag. I'll put $5 in the jar. We're doing this. <laughs> yes. But yeah, so that's exactly the point, David. We are trying to establish a sustainable partnership. When we have clients that have been hit in cyber claims and they have a cyber policy in nine years, 
I have not had a claim that wasn't paid appropriately. Remember, a cyber policy fundamentally, except for the small universe of unsavory data practices like social media with Hopusky side, most cyber policies that cover losses are truly fortuitous losses. The policyholder is a victim. There was no foul play within the organization, unless you have a rogue employee, which is still covered anyway. Most of the cyber claims that we see coming are truly fortuitous. So it's very difficult for the insurance company to come back and say this and that and this and that's not covered. There is, however, a reason for a property insurer to say, yeah, we cover business interruption, but business interruption doesn't include cyber attacks. It includes hurricanes, fires, and floods. Yeah. And do you see like sometimes as somebody who lives in New Jersey, there's signs saying insurance fraud is a crime. All over the turnpike. All over the turnpike. Do you know, again, divulging too many, you ever come into some internet where somebody figured their company on fire from a cyber perspective to, to make a claim? Is that something that ever happened? I have to say right now, being on a spot like that, I actually can't think of a reason. So I understand the reason why you burn down a building. It's an old building. I don't want it anymore. Ooh, caught on fire last night. I don't know what happened. There's that. From a cyber perspective, most cyber insurance policies will not leave you better off than where you were. And you're just, you're burning, not you're destroying, I guess is the right word, non-tangible assets. So how is there an incentive in my mind? I like the well, question. Maybe you so call like, contact group and say, hey, listen, we'll, we'll split for the ransom. Oh, with, yeah. a, with, a, with a threat actor? Yeah. I don't, I mean, problem is you'd have to, you'd have to sacrifice your own infrastructure, your own data, your own whatever. I don't necessarily know if that's something that- Cyber insurance is a crime. Cyber insurance fraud is a crime on the highway. I forgot the coverage, right? An employee, an employee, a rogue employee, he's what they're called on most policies, may do that. They may reach out to a threat actor, excuse me, a threat actor and say, I want you to blow up the network and I'll get half of the ransom. Most cyber insurance policies affirmatively cover the actions of a rogue employee. Wow, that's amazing. The coverage stacks at the C-suite. So CEO, CFO, general counsel has something to do with the cyber attack. The policy is void and it will pay. Well, but it will cover the acts of lower employees who may be disgruntled or involved in criminal activity. Absolutely. But there is a limit to the moral hazard that the policy will cover. Yeah, it has been a fascinating conversation. I want to make sure we cover one more, one or two more topics before Please. we wrap up, because I hear you have another all coming up. Let's talk a bit about what she, from a coverage perspective, what are kind of the top things that insurance companies are looking for to get you insured? And you kind of touched upon in the briefly previous discussion. This Talk is a very straightforward answer. So if anyone's listening, one, you're a nerd, and two, take out your pen. <laughs> I have affectionately named the five cash sale controls to get coverage now as the five force needed ransomware, right? So first thing is you need multi-factor authentication for all remote access, vendor access, and privileged or elevated accounts. No MFA, no cover, right? You're not going to get coverage. The second thing is, as we discussed, David, adequately prepped, tested, and insulated backups. I don't care how you do it, but you need to have it insulated. You have to have it tested, and it needs to have separate logins. The third thing is a little bit more technical, but we're seeing it really come into its own right now, which is reducing the number of overprivileged accounts within the domain. The domain accounts, whether you're a domain administrator or a service account for a third-party service, those accounts are being leveraged all the time for cyber attacks. And so we were recently with Uber, I think. Yeah. If you have too many, if you have too many overprivileged service accounts, 
most underwriters are now going to either ask you to justify why you have so many accounts in the domain or shut them down. This is what David does, and I just need to check here real quick. I believe that the PAM, people who access managing vendors are, are doing quite well these days. I think for yes. that, that reason you described. Yeah, some of their licenses cost as much as a car. I understand. Yes, definitely. <laughs> and that's um, the, yeah, absolutely. The fourth data point is active, appropriately provisioned and tweaked EDR, XCR, whatever you want to call it. They want to make sure that all the endpoints are monitored with for anomalous behavior and that you have isolation and containment technology. Underwriters will treat you as a fail if you don't have EDR, XCR across 95% of the enterprise and servers, both. And then the last one is phishing or some sort of social engineering training because every cyber attack starts with someone opening up the wrong attachment. It's impossible. I always tell people, if we didn't have humans interacting with the computers, there wouldn't be cyber attacks. It's very difficult to break into computers. But if you can get someone to give you their password, it's a lot easier. So social engineering or phishing training and having some sort of awareness in the organization is a must. So just to review, multi-factor authentication, tests and backups, reduction of overprivileged accounts in the domain, making sure you have EDR or XDR, and some sort of social engineering or phishing training in place. If you don't have those five things in place, don't buy the insurance. It's not going to cover anything anyway. Get your house in order. And, and is that across all verticals for terms of, of companies? Or are there any additional ones, for example, for financials or from a compliance perspective? Yeah, definitely. That's about as distilled as it can get. If we go back to the example of the factory producing a million widgets a day on an automated assembly line, you're going to have to have really demonstrated, really adequately demonstrated air gapping controls of your operational technology systems, making sure that no one can put in a USB port, plug in a USB stick into a port and bring down a system. So there's unique situations for financial institutions, healthcare institutions like that. There's a huge component for being able to stay online, utilities like power companies and the internet are increasingly exposed to regulatory liability for failure to deliver, which has taken hold in the EU and is definitely coming into the US, I think, over the next five, 10 years. So it's nuanced. Those are the top five that I think everyone will have to have in place, but there are obviously other ones depending on your industry class. Absolutely. And regulation and compliance requirements from coming from Washington, specifically around, for example, the CMC, like defense contractors, so on. But some of it trickles down to the private sector over time for various different reasons. And I know, for example, that in the real estate industry, there are lobbyists in Washington that are moving the needle in terms of what's required. And there are potentially, there's a lot to gain from some insurance companies adding the next as we mentioned, PAM is a thing now, privilege access management, but what is the next thing? Because all those vendors are now going to do quite well. Is there somebody out there lobbying for adding additional regulatory requirements for the private sector from the, potentially adding it to the insurance requirements? You know? I'm not entirely well versed in answering that question. So what I'm about to say is kind of speculative and is probably a little biased in my own personal opinion. So I do think that the insurance industry the insurance companies, let me rephrase that, and the brokers are appropriately gently trying to lobby the government with a little bit more of a push on regulatory, but they've always just generally pushed for the stick versus care approach. If you can't, if you can't get your house in order, we're going to make the cover so unaffordable or so you used to say you're not going to buy it. I do think that there is a little bit of discussion, especially around the larger sort of 
cyber terrorism backstop coverage from the government that's made headlines lately. So I think that's there from the insurance industry. And I genuinely think that most of those efforts are to make this a sustainable marketplace that will be around for generations to come. Are there vendors that are lobbying for chain controls or this and that? I don't know. I do know, and this is where I might get some hate mail, but you know what? Because I think lobbyists are the death of democracy. There are a lot of industry lobbyists that push back on regulation because companies don't want to invest the capital in having adequate controls in place and having adequate backups in place. All these things that we talk about that make you insure a risk, I'm not naive. I know they cost money. They cost lots of money. We talked about this. So there is a bit of a push and pull. I think ultimately the arc of history is for the benefit of humankind. So it should work out for the best cycle. I like the poverty overview of where it comes. Um, and what about, and we have to wrap up, I know, but I'm curious. So in Florida, and I feel like we, maybe we have to do like a part B of this, because I think we just touched on, on some of these. I'd love to also maybe, maybe come back with some sort of, maybe some specific topics and maybe some specific, uh, uh, maybe a court cases that involve cyber insurance. So we might send those there to see where, what could be done right or wrong. But let's talk about just one thing I'll ask you. So. Florida, for example, we hear the insurance companies are shying away from providing insurance for properties because due to the hurricane season that, that is destroying it. So it's becoming almost like an insurance desert where you cannot find uh, anybody to insure you. Do you feel that this is a, has a potential to, for something like that to happen in cybersecurity, in the cyber insurance where there's certain verticals, there's certain companies, or certain type of businesses that are more prone to that, that are not the insurance company is going to say, listen, we're, we've been there, done that. We're not here to lose money. We're not going to insure you. So I think that's a really good question. Anything's possible. Uh, a really good friend of mine was talking about this on CNBC yesterday. So that's you know, see that, but I, I just um, was curious. It's possible. I think David from 2019 to 2021, we experienced the most profound cyber insurance desert that I've seen in my industry. There are classes of business right now right now that are still generally uninsurable or very difficult to insure. Managed security service providers, one of them for obvious reasons. Yep. Payment card processors are very difficult because they're such integrated parts of the economy and their liabilities are everywhere. There are industries right now that are very difficult to insure. I think that as the marketplace continues to mature, and if we continue to make our underwriting models more informed, I think that will get better with time. Florida is a very unique situation. It's a good example, but it's a unique situation. I can't believe I have an instance this is property, but I'm a nerd. Florida has a situation where the contractors and the lawyers, and this is from watching that interview yesterday, Danielle, on CNN, or CNBC, there's a problem where the contractors and lawyers can basically hold the insurance company hostage. And so a repair that should have been $10,000 ends up being $100,000. Or it's, it's a very unique situation that needs someone to come in and fix that regulation. From a cybersecurity perspective, I think the law of supply and demand has been very effective at regulating what's there. So when we had the insurance desert come in, the cyber insurance desert come in 2019 to 2021, prices went sky high. What happens when premiums go up? new entrants come into the marketplace. So when the supply goes down and the price goes up, people come in. We still have that push and pull supply and demand in the cyber insurance space. So I don't think that we're at risk of seeing desert. I think what we could see in the future 
He has some sort of strategy around limiting systemic risks. I don't know what the solution of that is. I don't like systemic risks exclusions on policies. I think it's a little disingenuous, but until we have a massive catastrophic situation where a massive cloud provider is down for 12 hours, I don't know if the market's going to have an answer. And also if a massive cloud provider is down for 12 hours, you and I are trading in salt and chickens anyway. The world is in. Let me ask one last question here again, because I'm so curious, but actuary sciences, right? Oh boy, there, there are tables out there uh, and some even ridiculous thing one day, somebody calculated when you walk around New York City, what are the odds of you falling through one of those gears? Like just through, because there is, there's a, statistically speaking, yes. is, is, is there something like that? And really younger, cybersecurity is it younger, cybersecurity insurance is younger industry. So maybe the tables are, are not as developed. This is sure. I will tell you, I will tell you, David, that five years ago, there, there wasn't really a lot of actuarial science because the speed at which cyber risks evolves is so much quicker than traditional property. We have 500 years of windstorm data. I can tell you within five dollars how bad a storm is going to be. With cyber, it's a little bit different. So the actuarial science around cyber absolutely has a, a backward looking historical component. But there has to be a monitoring or a modeling component based on a given company's own attack surface, maturity, et cetera. I think it's going to be, I think it's going to continue to mature. There's a lot of vendors that are coming into space that do a really nice job of it. But I think we have a long way to go. That being said, I also think it's way more complicated than the historical actuarial needs. It really is. I mean, like, we're out of time. I have to tell you, you did a phenomenal job tackling all my questions and some of which were not easy. I mean, Really, so thank you very much for, for joining me today. What's the easiest way for people to reach out to you for to know more about what you do and just uh, just in general for advice or, or whatever? If it's fine, you can find me right on LinkedIn, David Anderson, and you'll see David Anderson CIPP, which is my privacy designation. So hard to miss. Awesome, thank you very much. So, all of those uh, who joined today, thank you very much for joining. I'm uh, looking forward to seeing the next episode, and until then, stay safe online as well as offline. See you soon. Thank you, David. Thank you.